0: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Today's guest becomes highly recommended from any Canadian who's ever met her on tour. I don't know what it is about these Australian guys, but man, they're they fan favorites, so let's get into it. Today's guest has represented Australia 15 times on the world tour. He's already had three top five results on the world tour and recently won the Pacific Games, so please welcome to the show Tim Dixon. Tim, thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you very much, Josh. That's a nice warm welcome. Yeah, thanks for you know coordinating the time. I know you're at the other side of the world, but I'm glad we could connect. Uh, Sergey Gorovski gets the assist for for joining you. Um, how did you guys meet? Is it just for, through a couple events on tour? You ran into some Canadian guys.
1: Yeah, I think uh, especially when you're working your way up through the lower events, the ones and the two stars, it becomes a bit of a community in itself. Like obviously the high level athletes in the four and five stars are all best mates around the world and are seeing each other every week, and it's. And it's the same for the the lower-level one-star athletes. It's the same community trying to make it. Um, So I think you get connections that way, and you're all in the same sort of grind. So you and I met a
0: couple of years ago. uh, at a one-star, I think. and uh, Yeah, it just went from there. Awesome, and we were lucky enough to have Bakara Palmer on the show, so people can check out our archives. We didn't get too much into the Australian sports system, so I just wanted to know, for you, when did you start playing volleyball, and more specifically, beach volleyball? Like, Is it a school sport? Is it a club sport? When did you kind of get into volleyball and choose it as your sport?
1: Yeah, it's funny in Australia. It's definitely not a mainstream sport. I started playing indoor at high school uh, in grade 8 or 9, so when I was about 14. I think that's when most kids start playing global in Australia, would be that high school age. Started at indoor, played a couple of years there. Was lucky enough to make some rep teams. Made my way up the indoor circuit to the junior national team. Um, I was vice captain there for a couple of years. I was actually a middle blocker, um, and I was told after a couple of years' stint there that I was too short. So I was cut from that team. And I'd just uh, picked up beach, um, and most athletes pick up each I think through the state organisations. So I grew up in Queensland, Volleyball Queensland. You start playing the local tour. There's national junior events, um, and the, and if you love it and you work hard and you, you're talented and you work your way the system through there. And I was lucky like, have to do that. And then uh, yeah, so you go from the, the national system and then work your way up into senior and get selected for teams and. And that's how it sort of goes. So it's a, it's a late start, I think, for Australians compared to most uh, other nations. And, and yeah, it's definitely not a mainstream sport. So lack of funding, yeah, that was probably a bit long-winded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, all good. So when you say uh, you're part of the state system, are you being self-coached when you really get into it? Like it's you and your partner going to the beach to train? Or are there coaches available for some of the youth stuff you were competing in?
1: Yeah, there's definitely coaching. Um, it's more of a squad thing. So you're in a, a junior squad or, or a state squad, and it's different in every state. There's no sort of centralized system where every state has its own equal hub. Um, each state will, will give a little more or less than other states, depending on how their system's set up. And it's up to the athlete to, I guess, work their way through that individual pathway to the national team.
0: Nice. And were you just to clarify, when you went to U twenty one Worlds, which I think was your first international competition, uh, were you identified? Did you and your partner have to win a tournament? Like, how were you selected to represent Australia at that competition?
1: Oh, it's a good question. Takes me back a few years. Ago. <laughs> I think there was a couple of us in contention um, that was selected as a squad from Australian national champs. Um, so it was under twenty ones at the time, and I think I got a silver medal that year at National Champs. I'd actually got silver every year at National Champs, three in a row. So that's done. But uh, we were training as a squad and then it was basically coach selected uh, the teams to go. So you proved yourself at, at National Champs and then a few interest squad tournaments and these things. And then the coaches had the final say.
0: And you mentioned you were with the indoor squad. So did you get much international competition with them or was your your event in Cyprus there kind of your first taste of high-level international volleyball?
1: Uh, I was lucky enough to go to Thailand a few times and Iran for uh, Asian junior indoor champs. Um, So I'd had a little taste, but beach is just such a different world to indoor. So when I got to Cyprus, I was just blown away at at the tournament and how it all works and the intensity of the proper beach volleyball competition it was wild
0: nice anything stand out in your mind kind of like a, a welcome to pro volleyball like you guys took a, a good main draw result so you obviously did well but was there a couple shaky moments at the start
1: oh man i was shitting myself <laughs> uh, i think uh, i think in our first game we were up up against spain and we were up maybe nine five in the third set and we ended up straight choking that and lost and man the disappointment from that was just unreal, so it was hard to pick ourselves back up after that first game of the tournament. Came up against Mexico. second game, I think that went for about an hour and 15 minutes, it was the longest game of the tournament. Each set went 10-15 points into overtime and to come out on top and, on that one was was much needed after that first game and, and a real welcome to country, I guess, for international volleyball.
0: Nice, nice. And you mentioned you were a middle. so. Was beach just really enjoyable for you because you got to do a little bit more skills? Like imagine being yeah. a junior national team middle, you weren't doing much serve receive or, or setting or anything like that, right? So was it just the enjoyment of, of handling the ball every rally that got you into beach more?
1: Yeah, middle's come a bit of a bad rap for being uh, uncoordinated, but <laughs> we're not all bad. And uh, Yeah, I love beach. Um, I was drawn not only to the skills of the game and that you have to pass set hit everything but just the, the lifestyle it comes with as well, like the international travel, the fact there's only two of you, it's such a mental battle, there's no one else to rely on. Um, I really just fell in love with the sport. Um, it obviously helped getting cut from indoor to, to, to make my decision to go with beach, but honestly it was my love for the game that, um, that drew me to beach and that lifestyle of the game and the difficulties it brings was, um, was too
0: difficult to resist. In Canada we don't have a domestic tour and we're actually pretty envious of the way Australia does it because it seems like when you guys host an international event there'll be a domestic tour event and right before it and we've been lucky enough to get some wild cards or just get into the tournament so it makes the the trip around the world a little bit easier when we know we can play in two events so uh, as a local what's the your impression of the national tour like it, the level's obviously quite good but is it easy to travel around the country and go to the different stops like how do you find it as a, as a domestic player being on uh, your national tour?
1: Uh, it's okay. It's okay. It uh, it sort of changes a bit every year. It sort of always always threatens to to blow up into something huge and 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 be really consistent and positive and 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 useful. But it's 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 useful for growing up as a pathway in Australia for sure. I mean, there's. There's usually one event in each state, uh, there'll be a state open, for example, the Queensland Open or the Victorian Open, and and most teams in the country, most top teams will go and fight it out there, so you're getting generally good experience against the top teams in the nation, the teams from the program and, and others, funding a little limited, limited prize money, um, you probably end up losing money um, unless you're winning the event, um, obviously that's not why we do it, but that uh, that has shown a tendency for some some top teams and others to shy away um, if it's not in their best interest. So there's definitely room for improvement on the tour, but as I said, it's a great pathway, especially as a junior coming out to, to cut your teeth on.
0: Okay, so it's fair to say it's not like the, the U.S. having the AVP or the Brazilian Pro Tour where you can arguably make a living with some of the prize money they've got, where it seems like Australia, you're more like the rest of us where nobody's getting rich by playing beach volleyball on a, <laughs> on a weekend at home.
1: Oh, I wish we were like America or Brazil, but uh, unfortunately not. Yeah, you maybe get about $1,000 for winning as a team, um, but each event is different. and uh, Yeah, it's definitely not something to make a living off, but it's a good way to sort of get started and, and get some games under your belt before you head overseas.
0: Now, one thing that I was kind of eager to hear about is when Cam Wheelin started, uh He spent some time and was lucky enough to get an Australian training group when they were over there last year, I believe. Is uh, Just the way Australians train, it seems like there's a lot of evidence-based stuff. And he said something as simple as uh, the drill at the end of the practice was just a simple Kings Court that I'm sure everybody's played. But there was a bonus point on the line if you served your spin serve over a certain kilometer an hour speed, which I thought was kind of cool. Now, do you guys use the speed gun a lot? Do you use a lot of video? Like is technology and evidence-based stuff used in everyday training? Or was that just a gimmick to really impress him about what you guys are doing?
1: (laughs) Uh, sometimes, uh, I mean, our coaches get pretty creative, um, for sure. Like sometimes we have those funny little games or, or bonuses where you've got to got to serve against a speed gun, and it doesn't count if it's X kilometers or less. Or, or sometimes you've got to, you know, say say random things or do math sums while you're performing skills. Like it definitely they definitely keep it interesting most of the time, but uh, evidence-based sometimes, I think. Uh, I don't think we hear a lot of that as athletes. You know, the coaches in the engine room will be will be looking at that stuff and we get sort of told what to do and do it. So, yeah, Cam, it was good to have those guys here, a bunch of fun.
0: Nice. Is that kind of a welcome thing you know, when, when teams do come and visit either National Tour or FIB, just different people to train against? Because I'm sure, much like Canadians, you feel isolated a little bit where it's just nice to have new people come over and play every once in a
1: while. Yeah, it's very rare. Um, we sort of get sick of playing each other day in day out, so it was really nice to have it was Cam, uh, Will Howie, Jake McNeil, and, and Sergey over here, um, just to have new people to play against and new games to to get into and to go hard in and You know, set up a little tournament and, and have match play. It's, it's quite rare, so yeah, it was great.
0: Awesome. And I think our listeners are familiar with the Canadian system where we have both uh, a centralized program for the youth athletes. So they're required to be in Toronto and train full time and do their weights and that stuff. Uh, And then we have another division called senior where basically if they earn a certain amount of results, they're allowed to be camp based and train wherever they like. And some still choose Toronto, but some choose to train remotely Uh, with the Australian system. think I think you guys are required to be in Adelaide, but I kind of wanted to ask you just what the the national team requirements are and how big the squad is and just kind of give us a a detailed look at what the program is doing right now.
1: Yeah, sure. There's definitely a centralized program in Adelaide. Um, And if you're not there, it is extremely difficult to get onto the World Tour and make it on the World Tour without that support. I'd say most of the high-level athletes in Australia are based in Adelaide, so if you're not there, you're just not getting the competition or the training or the coaching expertise that you otherwise would. Um, it's definitely possible. Uh, like We've got a few athletes around the place that are doing their own thing and, and making it that way, which is great. Um, but, yeah, certainly a lot easier funding coaching training-wise if you are in that program.
0: How often are you guys on the sand? Is it is it once a day for Monday to Friday? Is there weights involved? Like how, how much are you guys going when it's kind of peak season?
1: Depending on the time of year, if it's a bit of an off period, uh, we might be in the gym four times a week, usually three. We'll be training uh, maybe five just Monday to Friday once a day uh, or twice, Tuesday, Thursday. And then if we're really ramping it up for a competition period, we might be training twice in the sand every day plus one on saturdays and then back off the gym a little bit to really focus on that sand um but yeah generally two sessions a day
0: five days a week nice and i did want to follow up on something bakara told us she mentioned her and nikki just did a fundraiser and kind of rented out a pub and sold some t-shirts and that really paid for a big chunk of their funding so i'm wondering is that their network or is just the community of, of beach volleyball fans in australia and kind of their network of family and friends is that typical like it does once you're in the beach volleyball community, might be a little bit small compared to some other sports there, but is it pretty? I don't know. Involved and supportive of the top teams. Uh, yeah,
1: Nikki and Makara are really doing good things. They're one of those those teams I mentioned that are sort of quasi working outside the program. Um, so they've done a great job at utilizing the resources they have and the the uh, the marketing skills they have to to build their own brand and raise their own funds, uh, which is something you just have to do if you're not fully uh, embraced I guess by the program and have their funding support so yeah if you're not in that program um, you definitely need to get creative with how you're, you're raising money to support yourself on tour.
0: Now is there a community that would say watch a national tour event like uh, would there be bleachers a DJ music like is it kind of a big deal to play in some of the larger national tour events or is it again kind of a small community of very interested people
1: oh look I'd like to say yes it's building a little bit there's a little bit of momentum behind it the last few years but I mean when you look at other countries no, no like we're just it's a very small community relatively when it's at a beautiful iconic places like Manly Beach you get a lot of walk-by's I'd say that would be our main source of crowd is you know, interested onlookers that happen to stop so yeah not a huge spectacle in Australia Touched on earlier, it's not a mainstream sport, Um, so a lot of people probably don't even realise we play it or what it is or how it works. They just know it's, you know, bikinis and sand and fun. So Australia is definitely dominated by its ball sports like AFL and rugby and,
0: and cricket. Nice. And one thing that I've noticed whenever we play an Australian team, we always have to alert for the two ball. So is that something as simple as once you guys learn basic skills as kids, you're learning how to two ball? Like, is that taught at a pretty beginner level? Because it seems like by the time people have reached the national team, they've mastered it, right? So uh, how much does that get practice? How many secrets can you tell us without getting in trouble? But why does every Australian team, male or female, have a wicked two ball?
1: Uh, I didn't learn too much of it growing up. Um, It was sort of once I hit the program. Josh Slack uh, was with us as an analyst at the time, and mate, if you've ever seen him play, he's probably had the best two ball of anyone ever in the sport, um, so we were super lucky to have him with us, teaching us his skills, and, and it sort of just blossomed from there, I guess, the team, Josh Slack, Andrew Schott, um, who were possibly our most successful male Olympic team ever, uh, really pioneered that game, I think, and and Andrew Schott being the men's head coach now, um, I guess just spreading what they learnt and were able to develop into, into the next generation and, and, and it's really blossomed from there into an Australia-wide thing
0: nice and how are they received by the program because we've got uh, two legends that are around our program with Marquise and John Child and it's it's kind of funny to watch how it's progressed where my age group thinks they're they're awesome and, and kind of watch them play during their prime where uh, it, it's funny now Mark has almost turned into like someone's dad where his kids are all very good players so when he shows up at the center it's kind of like oh that's Marcus's or that's Michaela's dad that's not like Marquise bronze at the Olympics so uh, how have, have those guys been progressed are they still getting everybody's attention and when they run a practice you're kind kind of all ears or is it uh a little bit of that they faded out of the spotlight (laughs) bit of a lose-lose answer for me here isn't it i think uh (laughs) josh has
1: uh since retired um i think two years ago so he's a bit out of the picture now but i think when he was here everyone was just all ears whenever he had to say something and andrew shot has been you know in that head coaching role for a number of years now so i don't want to say he's faded away but um (laughs) Yeah, everyone's, I think, uh, used to hearing
0: his voice. Yeah, sorry I didn't phrase that very well to kind of set you <laughs> up. So if they're listening, hopefully we pump them up a little bit later. But, uh, <laughs> um, how did you find when you started to travel a little bit more on the FIUB, like just looking at how you progressed through your career, you played U21 uh, and then you did some national tour stuff and then it looks like you, you started going on tour pretty consistently from then on. So how did you find the jump from youth events and national tour to being on the FIB tour?
1: Yeah, I actually had a bit of an interesting time getting onto that stage, a bit of adversity, a few injuries. And when I moved to Adelaide after U21s, I had some ongoing knee issues, and I finally made the move from Queensland to South Australia, across the country, and and just after my first couple of months of training here, I had to have a little knee surgery, some tendonitis, and some cartilage, so I came back from that, and I was the odd guy out. I didn't have a partner, and You know, the other young guys my age and and the developing crew were starting to cut their teeth on the world tour and I was sort of left out um, in 2016. And then I'd just come back. I worked my way into selection for Asian Championships in 2017, which was my first international senior event. Went to Thailand. Uh, I'd had a bad shoulder that summer. So after my knee healed, my shoulder started to become a bit dodgy and... Every tournament, I needed a cortisone to be able to lift it again. So I'd play a tournament Saturday, Sunday, it'd be all good. And then I'd wake up Monday, wouldn't be able to lift my arm. So cortisone injection, next weekend, go and play again. Did that about four or five times. I was just holding on to Asian Championships. Made it to the tournament, uh, won our first game, lost our second game on Saturday. Day two, I wake up, can't lift my arms. So we had our third pool game, still to play, and, and I had to serve and hit basically left-handed so that wasn't too fun and, and we ended up losing that surprisingly so I flew back to Australia straight away for surgery and then my my next season of World Tour was was again taken away from me so it took me a while to really get into it after those two early surgeries in my in my national team career but I was able to stay positive with a lot of perspective I mean I'm with a big belief that Whenever you face something like this an injury or whatever it might be in your life that other doors open. So when that first surgery happened with my knee, I was able to get a job which I maybe otherwise wouldn't have with time constriction so that allowed me to start earning an income and and really supporting myself away from my family and then that second surgery after my shoulder, um, I was actually able to go on a university trip I'm studying law at the moment and I was able to go on a three-week trip to Vanuatu to study environmental law over there. And I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't get injured. So I think uh, the doors open when these things happen. And with a little bit of perspective, um, that can end up being positive. So after those two experiences, I then was able to make it onto the tour with my partner, Marcus Ferguson. We teamed up in 2018. We had a pretty successful national tour when we first debuted. We uh beat the Swedish national team um, for our first national tour victory and then ended up winning three in a row. So that was a, a dream start. And then debuting on the world tour with him was, was again another step up. And we, we did the one-star one, one star circuit through Asia and then we were lucky enough to go to Europe for a few tournaments there. and And, yeah, so it was a long process to get there, but I made it and I'm super grateful for all those people that supported me through that.
0: Yeah, I'm just wondering, after your injury, were these options that were came apart or came about excuse me fairly easily in terms of like you had a an alternative route to go or did I'm always interested when we have high level athletes talk about some injuries and they're out, they it kind of affects their identity in a little bit of way. So um was this something you had to kinda look for some options and try to be positive deliberately, or were, did you find these alternatives pretty simply because you were already a good student and had some options that you could go to?
1: Uh yes and no, I think it depends I mean some athletes get injured a lot unfortunately I'm one of those and they're probably used to it and some go through a lot of their careers without a major injury so I think when you're not used to it it can really hit you hard Um, I don't want to say luckily but in a way I was lucky that I'm sort of used to it so um, after that first one I I was able to go and seek out a job uh, which took you know some motivation I wouldn't say soul-searching but That second one with the study trip as well, that was probably driven by me for sure. But um, yeah, it would have been easy to sit on the couch and and just go and do my rehab and then go home and sit on the couch again and play games or whatever. But um, yeah, I think with that perspective brings brings a bit of motivation to, to see how you can improve other areas of your life.
0: Now, obviously, I'm sure the the results with Marcus helped confirm that all the rehab and all the time you put in was worth it. But was there anything else you were doing kind of during rehab and and back to playing that kind of, I don't know, made you believe that you could do this? Because it's got to be frustrating to be injured, come back, and then injured again, right? So when the results weren't there, how did did you make sure you were still progressing and could still be an international volleyball player?
1: I think it just comes down to belief um, in yourself. If you you don't believe in yourself, you know, why bother doing all the... the the early hours in the gym and the, the repetitive exercises and rehab. Like if you if you believe in yourself and you believe you can make it, then then that's all it is, I guess. Yeah, just a simple one.
0: Now when you said you went to um Asian Championships, so for Canada we play on the Norsega tour and it seems like every I'd say every other Norsica event, somebody comes back with a story because Sometimes the net's not up, uh, the, just some, some Central American countries are just kind of on their own time, sometimes where you'll show up and a court's not ready or the, the beach isn't even raked or just little things like that or the schedule's just not up. Like, Simone Fakir Bhutan told us that he he went to bed one night and his game was at this time and when he woke up, it was at a different time. So I, I'm hopefully going to hear that the Australian, t- or excuse me, the Asian tour is organized a little bit better or what's your experience on your continental tour?
1: Look, I don't know much about Seca, but I would say it's a reasonable assumption that the Asian Championships is less organized than North Seeker. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it is very ad hoc. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it all gets done. All the games get played and the money gets crowned. But, um, yeah, definitely go to bed, waking up different times, different courts, whatever. It can, uh, it can be a bit of a whirlwind. Asia is a tough place to play, but uh, that's why we love it.
0: Now, obviously, they're they're close-ish to you guys for travel, I guess. That's why you're obviously in their continental tour. But uh, the lifestyle can be a little bit different. So Canadians, like I, I've been to China, and it was not my you know, favorite experience as far as food and <laughs> things like that. But you kind of go through it. Um, how have you found it? Is it a little bit tricky? Like, obviously, you guys are a little bit closer and maybe used to it. But uh, is it fair to say the food's a little challenging for every international team who goes there?
1: I think that's very fair to say. I mean, Asia. I'd say is easily the toughest place to play. Um, not only are you you do not have access to the foods you foods you would usually eat, but it's just so hot, man. Like I'm sure you you know from being over there that the humidity and the heat just kills everyone. It's a great equalizer, and it just becomes a war of attrition. Really, it becomes a different game in those conditions. Everyone's struggling, everyone's hurting, and probably sick from the food, and um, you're not able to replenish and rest like you usually would. So it's super tough.
0: Hopefully you don't give us a a typical answer that says, oh, I treat them all the same. But again, just looking at your results, you guys have been a top five team at one stars, but then still going through the qualifier at some four and five star events. So uh, be honest. Is it a little bit different when you arrive and know you're in the main draw versus when you're going to have to play a qualifier?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's different. When you're you're in the qualifier, I mean, I'm a nervous person um, for sure, so when i know i'm in the main draw it it takes a bit of that anxiety away but i mean you can't play the sport without having to go through qualifiers so everyone experiences it but for sure it's nice being in the main draw when you've got a hotel paid for ready Well, uh, unless you're at a one star but hotel food you know these things all organized for you um for sure it's, it's easier
0: nice and obviously the the tour is on a little bit of a, a hold right now but uh what were you looking forward to this season? Because it looks like you and Marcus have, have progressed nicely. Like I said, the, the star system always isn't a, a true system. of it. like You start at the one star and you climb away to the five star for, for a lot of teams. But it looks like you guys have been progressing pretty steady. So how is the partnership going? Do you guys still feel like you're getting better? And we're obviously excited for a big year?
1: We were. And then I've actually got another injury at the moment. So my knee, um, I'm sure we'll touch on our Pacific Games. We played in July. Sort of around that time, my knee started going downhill again, and it concluded with a surgery in October last year, and um, it's one of those ones where no one can tell me really what's wrong with it, so I've seen Giseo as doctors, surgeons, neurologists, and, and no one can give me a proper diagnosis, so I'm actually MIA at the moment for an indefinite period of time, which is which is unfortunate, but yeah,
0: no immediate plans for me. Yeah, let's let's segue to that. So Pacific Games, it's listed on the FIV site as a zonal tour. So is that bigger than some of your continental tours? Just kind of describe who's at this competition, how you and Marcus were kind of nominated as Team Australia to go. Like, give us uh, just a glance, because not only myself, but probably a bunch of our listeners, we're just not familiar with that competition.
1: Yeah, certainly. Pacific Games is uh, obviously the Pacific region, which would, I'd say, be a bit weaker than than other zonal regions around the world. Um, I mean, our Olympic qualification region is through Asia, so you've got powerhouses in Iran and Qatar and China and Japan. And and the Pacific region is the Pacific Islands, so Vanuatu, Samoa, um, these sort of countries. So um, it's it's probably not the strongest zone in the world. We were selected to go by the coaches, and, and we ended up having a blast, and it was such an amazing tournament to be a part of.
0: So on Pacific Games, you guys obviously had a very good tournament. I mean, you walked away as the champion. So what do you remember as the tournament progressed and you kept going deeper into that event?
1: Yeah, Pacific Games was, um, was a great one for us and a really challenging one. I mean, the level probably wasn't quite the same as, as you know, the World Tour and, and the one-star level. But yeah, in the final, actually, we won the first set quite convincingly and we were looking good. And then at the start of the second set, I landed from a block and, Felt something funny in my leg and played the next few points and called a timeout. punched my quad a few times. I was like, "What's going on here?" It felt really funny, and then I went back out and I just couldn't jump. Like I physically couldn't use my right leg. It ended up being a nine-centimeter tear in my VMO, so I had a grade two quad strain, and and that was one of the toughest games in my life, emotionally and physically. You know, not really being able to jump or just having immense pain when you did jump was um, was really challenging. And we were able to get through it together. We lost the second set. Very stressful times, and we're deep into the third set of the Pacific Games gold medal, and, and luckily we pulled it out. Marcus went beast mode, and I was able to do enough to to get by, and, and yeah, we were lucky enough to come away
0: with the gold there, which will live with me forever. Wow. How... How did you manage that? Did you send Marcus to the net to block? Did you still block? Like, who were they targeting with their serve? Like, that's a pretty gnarly injury to still play two sets of volleyball through.
1: Yeah, I wasn't really getting served in the tournament. And then they sort of saw something funny going on, and I started getting every ball. So if, if I passed well enough, Marcus would hit on two. There um, it is. There's that two to ball. Do this <laughs> this funny sort of one-legged flamingo jump to to hit and send Marcus to the net. I would just try and serve this bomb of floats serve as much as I could anyway and try and put the point away and fall over in defense to get the ball. It was tough, but um, yeah, we got we got there in
0: the end. Oh, gnarly. And then what was the rehab for something like that? Like that, another injury to add to your list here?
1: Yeah, that one wasn't too bad, really. It didn't require surgery, which is nice. So um, just a couple of weeks of rest and then a bit of court-specific strengthening and, and I was back, so... Not too bad that one, but um, actually emotionally, I remember after that game, I almost broke down. I didn't really realize why. Um, it was a really special moment, um, fighting through that adversity. We actually didn't have a great season um, in 2019 on the World Tour. We had our own struggles in the team and weren't performing, and, and to top the season off with that, with that medal was really special. So I think the whole season sort of put up with me there, and uh, it was a great moment to come away with that win, that win under, under adversity.
0: Nice. And for our listeners who are obviously looking at your profile by now, hopefully, and seeing that you've gone deep into tournaments, uh, what advice would you give? Because we've had other guests on the show that talk about, you know, a a one star, don't belittle them or take anything away. They're still very competitive events, right? So for you guys to get into some medal rounds and other tournaments, like how would you describe just the flow of an FIB tournament where you're playing competitive matches, whether it's the qualifier or the main draw and everything just seems to be a fight. So how do you guys kind of manage and keep going through the tournament?
1: As in our personal approach?
0: Yeah, like how do you guys like to prepare for games, kind of rest and recover, even game plan? Because uh, like I said, finishing fifth at a one-star is no small task where a lot of those games are very highly competitive. Like you mentioned, you're in Asia a lot. The heat can be pretty grueling. Like, How are you playing at such a high level for three or four days in a row? Uh, Yeah,
1: as I said, I'm kind of a nervous person. So it's a lot about sort of mental-emotional management. Uh, Obviously, anyone knows sort of around that level that the game is is mostly mental so we generally learn a little bit about the team the night before if we've got some video um, we'll have a quick look at that Um, otherwise we'll you know make a quick strategy and then try and switch off for the night Um, wake up probably meditate in the morning and and try and ground yourself and then after breakfast or whenever it's about an hour and a half hour before the game we meet as a team and discuss our strategy again and then really start to switch everything on and ramp up. So it's all about how you can switch off after the game and, and manage your energy levels and your, your anxieties through the tournament. Um, because if you're carrying that 24-7, you've got no chance to make it deep.
0: What advice would you give maybe to one of our younger listeners who wants to be a player where they think, oh, I'm a professional, I have to be serious, I have to be on the whole time, where it sounds like you you switch off. So when you say switch off, does that mean... Uh, I don't know, are you playing video games? Are you reading a book? Like, how are you thinking about stuff other than than volleyball 24 hours a day? A lot of Mario Kart. Nice. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, Nintendo Switch usually comes with us on tour. Uh, But whatever works for you, I mean, sometimes I do some university work or or read a book or, yeah, we play the Switch or just go for a walk, depending on where you are. Um, Everyone's got their own own methods and ways of relaxing and switching off. So uh, whatever works for you, I guess.
0: Have the coaches ever said, all right, guys, enough is enough, like enough Mario Kart? Are they pretty supportive? uh, (laughs) Because hearing from like Dallas Keith and and a few other Canadians who have been over there, some of those games get pretty intense. Yeah, Mario
1: Kart gets very intense. I'd say the coaches don't know about it.
0: So (laughs) uh, yeah, they can't tell us not to do it. Nice. And you mentioned you're into meditation in the morning. Is that part of your routine, whether you're at a tournament or not? Or is that something you switch on when competition hits?
1: I'm definitely still in the experimental phase with all of the meditation and the breathing and the mindfulness stuff. Um, I'm no expert. I've been doing a little bit here and there over the past year and then it's really ramped up since I've had this knee issue and I've been been off the court for a few months. I've really started to look into it more and, and try and find what works for me. So I've developed a bit of a morning routine where I'll, I'll do some breathing every morning. Actually, your fellow countryman Martin Reeder was – was one that got me onto the breath work. Thanks, nice. um, thanks, good shout out there. With, with, with the work he's doing. So, yeah, breathwork meditation, um, I try and get in a daily practice. And then looking back to, to when I was playing, it's definitely something that I could have utilized more and will when I get back on the sand is is how you can ground yourself um, and really get into that calm space before a game so you can react instinctively and, and not be carrying anything in because I think that's really important.
0: Now, are you a big journal guy? Is that how you make sure you're progressing too? Or have you experimented with any of that stuff?
1: I have. It hasn't really worked for me. Um, I mean, I do have one, but I find myself writing in it for a couple of days and then forgetting about it. Like It's not something I'm sort of internally motivated to do. So look, it has its, its benefits, um, and I use it occasionally, but... I don't live and die by it or ride in daily.
0: Awesome. And is there any, again, advice for some of our younger listeners who want to apply this? Because it sounds like you've got just a great overall perspective. But in also talking to you, I I think it's fair to say that you've treated it kind of like a skill where you can be trained and you're you're trying different things, right? So kind of just give us an example of of where you started and how are you experimenting with stuff to make sure it works or if it's not for you, like it it's hard to be kind of open-minded with some of this stuff versus just saying it's not for me sometimes, right? So how are you finding yeah. that this process as an athlete coming back from injury and playing at a high level and being a student? Like, how are you putting all this together?
1: Yeah, I think for sure it's a skill that can be worked. Um, I'll bring it back to the to the start. I think people are different, and you've either got, you know, thinkers or feelers, and, and I'm a big thinker. I'm an overthinker. It's killed me in the past uh, being a victim of that overthinking where... Where you're playing, and, and then all these thoughts come rushing at you, and you just sort of uh, shit the bed. I guess I think a lot of people have been there, and then you know, some people are, uh, are not thinkers, and they just they just go through things and feel things and and go about it that way. So everyone's different. For the thinkers out there, I think meditation is a really important tool to to experiment with and play with. You can start, you know, however you want by by doing some Google research or downloading some apps, some meditation apps, and I think it's all about just finding your own journey. There's no set way to go about it. Find whatever works for you, tinker with it, um, try different things, and, and really try and find a practice that suits you and, and that you enjoy, and that that uh, that makes you a better person, I guess.
0: Awesome. Yeah, definitely some valuable stuff there. Uh, I'm always curious when I hear this about like overthinking when you're playing sports, so it might be hard to describe, but when everything's optimal or in a flow state for you, what are you thinking about? Because is, is it okay to think tactically when you're in a game, or like what? What's an example of like overthinking versus just being like in the moment and tactically aware of like what's going on around you?
1: Yeah, I guess when I think back to 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 my best performances, when you're in that flow state, you're really not thinking. Uh, you're just hyper focused. Uh, one of my friends referred to it as Tim Duncan eyes. I don't know if you're an NBA fan, but when Tim Duncan used to play, he had these really wide eyes when he played, and just that sort of hyper focus level um, that you get to, where you're just taking everything in and, and not really actively thinking. It's almost just happening to you. And overthinking—I mean, you can sort of tell when when there's a break in the game, when you're when you're waiting to receive serve or or mid rally and you just. These thoughts creep in like, oh, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do this. You sort of start questioning things, I guess, is probably a good telltale sign. Whereas when you're in that that state, it's just like, bang, I'm going to do this. Hey, listen, partner, we're doing this. And you just know. Whereas when you're overthinking, you might question things or or not have as much belief and, and steadfast in what you're saying
0: awesome and again just trying to steal as much as i can from you here because this is awesome stuff is there anything you do to support your partner is there anything they do to support you or is this mostly internally driven like can marcus identify when you're kind of in the tank or can you vice versa help him out of these situations
1: yeah definitely i think it's so crucial in the sport there's only two of you you're relying on yourself and each other so we're pretty good at telling when the other one is is yeah in the tank or or in a bit of a downward spiral um we probably both tend to go a bit quiet um, and go internal, and that's bad news. So when one of us starts to, to go internal, the other one's got to, to pull them out of that and pick them up with a bit of voice and, yeah,
0: saying the right things. Awesome, awesome. And for you, when you're in that flow state, uh, we just had super best friend of the show, Ben Saxon, on, and he kind of – he mentioned a lot of guys on tour will try to talk smack or be loud and obnoxious, and he finds that that's – that's not a, a good tactic for him because he thinks like they can't win on their skills. So I'm wondering when you're engaged in these moments, are you looking for conflict or are you similar to Ben where you're, you're so focused on what you're doing that you don't get distracted by like the noise of the opponent or the ref or anything like that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd say I'm similar to Ben. I've actually thought about it before. And, you know, sometimes on the national tour when you're trying things, I actually try to throw a bit of chat sometimes and uh, see how that works for me. And it's not my game. It actually distracts me from what I'm trying to do. But you do have these players and these these people who thrive who off that and it's their natural state to be picking fights and, and being aggressive and, and not throwing punches, but just getting into it. That's how they get themselves hyped up in the zone. Uh, it's not how I play. Uh, I've probably a bit of a calm approach and and coming from it from that that calm state, whereas others like to go to the other end of the spectrum and come from that Ultra-aggressive state and work down from there. So um, again, everyone's different. I'm not a, a chat thrower and a fight seeker um, <laughs> But obviously in the moment things happen and, and sometimes you get into it and that's okay, but um, yeah Not something that works for me.
0: So we've talked about this being a skill and something you need to, to Train and obviously try new things. Have you gone into a match and deliberately said oh, I'm gonna be I'm trying to be loud this game or I'm gonna try to be aggressive or do you try to save that for training to see how it feels? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it depends a little bit on the opponent as well. I mean, you want to be focusing on what you're doing, but sometimes you need to bring a little bit more. Um, As well, it depends on how you've prepared and and how you're feeling at the time. You know your body and your mind pretty well. If it's, you know, game three of the day or or you're on day three of the tournament, you're a bit flat, you need to do something about it. So whether that's come out with more energy just to get yourself out of the rut and,
0: and pick yourself up, sometimes you need to do it. Nice. And without burning a timeout, what are some of your skills to bring yourself back? Like when you feel like you're, you're really in trouble, is it something as simple as cleaning your glasses? Or is there any advice you can kind of give us for people to try in their own kind of building their toolboxes? Is, is it something simple that you can just do on the court, or does it actually require like a timeout or a side change to kind of give yourself a break?
1: Um, I'm a sweaty boy, so I have to clean my glasses basically every point. <laughs> um, but I probably come back to breath. And just noticing where your focus is and where your mind is at and if it's not on task and on the immediate future as in what's going to happen the next point, what am I going to do right now, then you need to bring it there. So whether that's breath or whether you know you have something written on your hand or your wrist or whether you stare at your toes and, and notice your feet in the sand and where you are. There's, there's endless strategies, I guess, that people can use to, to, bring them, to bring them back. Mine was probably just close my eyes and take a deep breath
0: and, and then focus on the next point. Awesome. This is, this is great stuff. You mentioned ball sports are more specifically were a little bit more popular in Australia than volleyball and you even mentioned that uh, sometimes people don't even know what you're doing when you're playing, uh, playing twos down at the beach. So for you being an athlete and obviously a, a bigger dude I'm sure you were drawn to some other sports. Uh, did you ever have a chance to play other sports or did anyone ever try to poach you from beach volleyball when you decided to commit full time?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Interestingly, I was Big on AFL, Aussie Rules football, growing up, um, and I think a lot of athletes are playing, you know, multiple sports in Australia, growing up. I was playing Aussie Rules, I was playing basketball, I was doing track, I was doing a lot of things. I just loved sport growing up. As a, as you said, a tall guy, and I had to make a choice between AFL and volleyball when I hit about 16. I couldn't keep doing both, um, and it was a tough choice because I mean, you know, these big sports in Australia like Aussie Rules or rugby or cricket there's a lot of money in them and a really strong pathway with you know academy systems and leading into these these elite teams uh, where you're getting million dollar contracts it's very tempting i was actually at 16 i think i had the choice of i was invited to join the Brisbane Lions academy which is a an afl club a junior academy in australia or or um, move to adelaide for for volleyball and it was a really tough choice. I mean, I was spoiled to have that choice, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, beach took the, took the chocolates, the, the lifestyle, the travel, uh, the toughness of the sport um, really drew me in. And and while there's that that carrot of uh, perhaps the ease uh, of which you can get into those those big sports in Australia and, and the money that's in them, um, a lot of kids do get drawn into those big sports, and and that's why. Minor sports like beach volleyball and volleyball really cut the rough end of the stick and, and have such low numbers relatively in Australia.
0: Yeah, even like the AFL is so popular that I, I've even found a few games on TV here in Canada. So obviously you made the right decision for your career, but did you receive any any outside pressure from either friends or family or just like you're, you're making the wrong decision just because of how popular the AFL is?
1: <laughs> Not so much. I mean, my family is super supportive and have helped me so much growing up in my career I think if you've got a good support group around you they'll support you in whatever you do but it was tough um but again it's in a sense it's it's more difficult to make it in those sports because there's such a dense population of, of people in those pathways kids growing up playing so yeah a bit of uh yin and yang with that one
0: I I can see why you were recommended and we'll, we'll have to have you back but for now I'm just looking at the clock we've, we've taken a lot of your time here but Uh, one thing we're trying to build as a tradition is just tell some funny stories so even though you're you're representing your country you won pacific games you've done all this awesome stuff i'm sure some funny or odd stuff still happens uh, when you're on tour playing or or anything like that so do you have a funny story you can leave me and the listeners with before we let you go
1: uh funny story my mind probably goes straight to my first semi-final on the world tour (laughs) it was a one star in thailand i was playing with zachary shibbert at the time and as we touched on earlier, the food in Asia um, is not optimal. Um, I think we've been on a diet of rice and broccoli for, for the week because <laughs> that's just all that you know seems healthy to eat, I guess, and safe. Um, but maybe I tried the chicken feet the night before. I can't remember. But the morning of the semi final, my guts were a bit crooked. We were warming up for the game, I think 10 minutes to go. I was just not feeling good, and I said, no, nah, I've got to go. I ran to this to the nearest toilet block but it was locked because I think we had the, the eight AM game, the first time slot, and I'm thinking, Oh no, what am I gonna do? And I've i climbed over the door and there was a gap between the door and the roof and I've scampered in there and <laughs> and uh, I've done the business and then no toilet paper, so I won't get into the details, but we had to get creative there and I've I've run back to the court and the game's about to start and the coach and Zach are like, What are you doing? and I'm like I'm good, let's go. We uh, unfortunately ended
0: up losing that game, but uh, yeah, that was one to remember. (laughs) Yeah, even life on tour isn't that glamorous. I'm surprised you could climb, like, you obviously had to go, but you you scaled in there pretty good. Yeah, and I think I lost about two
1: kilos in that time. It was like a sauna, so uh, (laughs) it wasn't ideal preparation, but I was definitely warm and
0: ready to go. Oh, man, nice little distraction before a big game. That never hurts, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's it awesome well thanks again obviously a very easy guy to root for so i can see why sergey said you got to get this guy on so uh
1: means a lot thanks josh i appreciate it yeah thanks
0: again enjoy the rest of your day tim
1: cheers mate appreciate
0: it talk to you later